So I've been updating the membership directory this week. Do you know that we have 311 members? We started Redeemer Church of Dubai three and a half years ago, in February of 2010, and in the uh, June of that year, we formally constituted as a church. Now, at that first meeting, we had 119 members. Now, to celebrate that first meeting, we did what most families do. We took a photo. Now, I found that photo on my computer this week, and I thought I'd share it with you. Here it is. So this is the Redeemer Church of Dubai in June 2010. So it might be a bit hard for you to see some of the the people here, but uh, if you look closely in the front there, I think you can kind of see Mac and Leanne, and next to them are Patrick and Ann Waweru, and that head sticking up on the right, that's Dave. As you kind of scan across and look, oh, there's a younger looking Butch Lim. And down here, there's Makami. She doesn't age at all. (coughs) When... If you're here for the first time this morning and you're looking at that picture, it probably means nothing to you. It's just a sea of faces with no names. But if you're part of this family, when you look at that picture, you not only see faces with names, but there are also stories in that picture. Stories of change, stories of blessings and answered prayers, stories of difficulty and heartbreak. Stories of resolving hurt feelings and stories of fun times together. They are the stories of God's grace at work in our lives. The story of how God's gospel of grace has brought us from so many different nationalities, different religious backgrounds and and different food. And how he has adopted us together in his family as his dearly loved children. And how he's called us to be like our Father in heaven, to image him and to represent him to the watching world. Of course, that's an impossible calling for us to achieve if we were to do it individually. We need each other to display God's glory. Now, as I look at this picture, I see more than just faces and names. I see the story of God's grace at work in our church. Last week, we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we saw how Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were writing to assure the believers of the reality of their salvation. It seems that Timothy had been back to Thessalonica, and he now returned to Paul and Silas in Corinth with a report back on the church and some questions that the church had. One of those questions was, how can we know that we've really been chosen by God? How do we know this salvation is real? So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy write back and they say, yes, you have been chosen by God. And you can be certain of it, as we are, for two reasons. The first one is that the gospel givers, that's us, have lives that demonstrate, demonstrated the reality of the message that we proclaimed. And the second reason is the gospel receivers, that's you, also demonstrated the reality of the gospel in your lives, so that, so much so that you also became gospel givers just like us, and everyone's heard about it. And then we saw that all of these things that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy wrote are not just to individuals in Thessalonica, they are to the church in Thessalonica. 
So gospel giving is to be lived out in the life of the church. So this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off in, uh, and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to 16. And here we're seeing Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy taking out their brushes, and they begin to paint a portrait of what it looks like to be a gospel-giving church. Now, when you step back from a portrait, you see one unified picture. It's, and so in chapter 2, that unified picture that they're painting is a clear and simple point, and it is this. A gospel-giving church are those that have been radically changed by the gospel message they proclaim, and it's visible in their relationships. Okay, a gospel-giving church are those that have been radically changed by the gospel message they proclaim, and it's visible in their relationships. Now, when you look closely, though, at a portrait, you begin to see the details that make it up. So, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and let's start looking in detail at this, at this portrait of a gospel-giving church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in new believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved." so as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now, in your bulletins, uh, you'll see on the sermon page, there are eight points there. 
Now, because there's eight, I, f- I figured I'd help you out and I'd p- put them there in the bulletin for you. So there's eight points. So these are eight aspects of a gospel-giving church that we see in 1 Thessalonians 2. They're not a comprehensive list, it's, nor is it a biblical study on the nature of the church, but rather this is a portrait of what you would expect to see in a church filled with gospel givers. So the first one is that they are bold in the face of opposition, the first aspect of a gospel-giving church. So you see that in verse 2 of our passage, where it says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there seems to be a pattern with Paul and his friends. First they're in Philippi, and uh, there's, there's chaos there, and then they go to Thessalonica, and there's trouble there as well, and later on they go down to Athens and Corinth, and the same thing happens in each of those places. Back in Philippi, uh, it was so bad that they got beaten with rods and thrown into maximum security prison. How, do you, how would you respond to that? Well, how did they respond? They sang hymns and praised the Lord in the middle of the night. But not only that, when the Lord miraculously uh, freed them with, the, with the, uh, an earthquake, they didn't run away in fear. They took that opportunity to then share the gospel with the jailer. And he came to Christ. What incredible boldness. But this boldness wasn't limited to Paul, Silas, and Timothy. This boldness we saw, remember in chapter 1, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of how they received the word of God in much affliction. There was extreme violence against them from the Roman citizens of that city with accusations of treason and threats on their life. And, And if you look in verse 14 and 16, Paul likens their suffering in Thessalonica to the same kind of opposition that the church in Judea experienced. He says, you were just like that church in Judea. They suffered at the hands of their own countrymen, just like you did. But interestingly, the opposition that the Thessalonians uh, experienced in Thessalonica was first incited by the Jews, if you remember that from Acts 16. See, ironically, it's the Jews who had historically been opposed to God's purposes to bring salvation to all mankind. You see, throughout the Old Testament history, that they had killed and abused prophet after, a pro- after prophet, finally killing Jesus. And now, they're actively working against the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's point then to the Thessalonians is this. The affliction and suffering that you are encounter- encountering as a church is nothing new. In fact, it's an age-old battle. But you, Church of the Thessalonians, are bold in the face of it. You continue to spread the good news. And he wants to encourage them on in that. Redeemer Church of Dubai, if we are to be a gospel-giving church like the one in Thessalonica, then based on history, we must expect that there will be opposition. Opposition doesn't mean that we should back away and stop declaring the gospel of God, whether it's in our church or whether it's in our homes, or in our workplaces, in our neighborhood. No, on the contrary, 
opposition is probably an indication that what we're preaching really is the gospel. I don't want to fool you into thinking that it's always easy to share the gospel. You need to be prepared and, to, and understand the cost ahead of time. If you speak the gospel of God to others with clarity and love, as we should, then you are likely to face opposition at some level. It may not be imprisonment uh, or beatings with a rod, but it may. Are you prepared for that? When you encounter it, how will you respond? See, boldness is, is to be willing to undertake something even when it involves risk or danger. And spirit-empowered boldness or boldness from God specifically refers to proclaiming the gospel of God even in the face of opposition. So when we look back at the portrait of Redeemer Church of Dubai in years to come, will we see in that portrait a story of boldness in the face of opposition? Can we, as a church, be bold? Well, the answer is yes. Yes, we can, because as Christians, we have been radically changed by the gospel. And we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where boldness comes from. We can boldly proclaim the gospel in our workplaces, in our homes, and to our neighbors. We can, because we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. That's the second aspect of a gospel-giving church, that they are approved and entrusted with the gospel. Now, it's an interesting phrase there in verse 4. Did you notice that? We have been approved by God and to be entrusted with the gospel. Now, at first reading, it might bring to you images uh, of Philippine Idol. Ever seen that show? Where there's lines of contestants all waiting to sing and get approval from the judges to go on to the next round so that eventually, hopefully, they might be the national singer, the best singer in the Philippines or the best singer in America or wherever. But this is not some cosmic version of, of pop idol with God as the judge. The only way anyone could be approved to be entrusted with the gospel of grace is if they themselves have been radically changed by it. So we can speak of grace because we have experienced the grace of God. The approving is done by God. He's the one who approves and he looks at us through Jesus' work on the cross. We have approval from God as Christians because we have been found in Jesus. Jesus is who God said of, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That's where our approval is. It is in Christ. See, it's the gospel of grace. There, there never was anything we could do to make God pleased with us because there was never any way that we could blot out our own sin. In fact, the very nature of sin tells us that there are no contestants in the cosmic, cosmic version of idol. No one is lining up to sing for God's approval. In fact, the very nature of sin is that we were in opposition to God. We'd rejected God as, as a judge, and we were singing our own song, whether he liked it or not. 
and yet he sent Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8, God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, my non-Christian friend, this gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus is for you. The Father sent his Son to die for your sins. He rose Jesus from the dead so that you could be forgiven. If you've been trying to please God by your church attendance or your, your good deeds, it won't work. It never could. Repent of your failed attempts and put your trust in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. There's no other hope. See, grace has been given to us in Christ Jesus. But here's the interesting thing about grace. Grace not only saves us, but it changes us. When we receive grace, it requires something of us. That's part of the approval process. So if you've put your trust in Jesus, Christian, then your life will show it. Perhaps not perfectly, certainly not immediately, but there should be some visible, ongoing change that is a result of the Spirit's work in you. One of those changes is that you no longer seek to please people. You seek to please God. So that's the third aspect of our portrait. It's a gospel-giving church fears God, not man. You see that in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, people-pleasing is a more common problem than you'd think. It sometimes goes by the name of peer pressure or codependency, uh, and as Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man. See, the problem feels like it's outside of us. It, we say, oh, they will see me, or they will do this to me, or they will think that about me. But in fact, the problem is in our hearts. In essence, the fear of man is the opposite of the fear of God. That's why Paul makes a connection here but with being approved by God and speaking to please God. If someone has been saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, that is, approved by God, then their fundamental allegiance has changed. They serve God. Where before it was all about status within their community, now as a Christian, your status is forever found in Jesus. That's the basis for the psalmist's hope in Psalm 146 that Eric read for us today, where it says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And in verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. You know, as a Christian, my status has permanently and irrevocably been changed. I am the Lord's and I serve him forever. But as a Christian, even though the power of people-pleasing may be broken in my life, its presence still remains. So the first step then 
is to recognize where the fear of man is showing itself in my life. So you can play itself out in, in any number of different ways. Have a listen to some of these, these things here. For instance, when you tell a joke because you want people to think you're funny, that's the fear of man. When you flatter someone or seek their approval so they think well of you, that's the fear of man. When you wear clothes intentionally because you want to fit in with a certain group or you want to draw attention to yourself, that's the fear of man. It could also show itself in your life by an inability to say no. You're constantly overcommitted to things. Or perhaps you feel like there is something you need from your spouse. You need them to give you respect. Or you need them to give you love. And if you don't get it, then you feel there's a void in your heart. That, that's the fear of man. Do you struggle with self-esteem or lack of confidence? Have you ever felt like you would be exposed as an imposter? That one day someone will finally discover that you, you really shouldn't be doing the job you're in or that your husband will finally discover the real you and not love you anymore? Or maybe you're constantly second-guessing your decisions because of what other people might think. Do you get easily embarrassed? Have you ever lied to cover up something, even if it's just that little white lie? Or do you get jealous of other people? Do other people make you angry or depressed? Are they just making you crazy? Or perhaps you're constantly comparing yourself to others. And when you do, you're either thinking you're better than them or, you're, or they're better than you. But either way, in so doing, you're still being defined by other people rather than by God. Now, understand this. The fear of man is a condition of the heart that expresses itself in different situations. So it's not, it's not wrong to make a joke and, and in a group setting and people laugh at it. But the Lord sees what's going on inside your heart. That's why it says in verse 4, He is the one who tests our hearts. See, a gospel-giving church are those who fear God, not man. They've repented of their desire for people's approval and are growing in the fear of the Lord. An excellent resource in, on this particular issue is a book called When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. Uh, we may or may not have copies on the bookshelf, but I want to encourage you uh, to get a hold of that. People who fear God don't need other people to fill their needs. Instead, they are able to love others because they themselves have been filled up to overflowing with the love of Christ. So the love of Christ enables us as a church to love others, to need others less and love others more. That actually leads us into the fourth aspect of a gospel-giving church, that there is palpable love. Now, palpable is a word that means something that is able to be touched or felt. So palpable love is love that can be touched or felt. It's become visible or it's tangible. So as we saw in Romans 5 verse 8 earlier, that 
God show, shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if, if God had merely said, you know, I, I really feel strong love for you guys, but he didn't send Jesus to die on the cross, then we'd be no better off and we would have no reason to think that God's love for us is real because it hadn't been demonstrated. For love to be real, it must be expressed in action. It must be palpable. When we love others, uh, we then, sorry, love others because we have been loved by God. So to use terms from our passage this morning, palpable love is an expression of our approval by God and our fear of God. So here's, notice the flow. So God's love was demonstrated, not merely in word, but also in deed, he sent Jesus. Then we are recipients of that palpable love and it overflows into deeds of love to others for his glory. That's why Paul says in verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. They showed love that, that showed itself in the gentleness of a mother and the exhortation and, and encouragement of a father. But what reason did Paul have to love the Thessalonians? None. There's nothing inherently about them. His reason was that he had been loved by God and that as a result he was able to love others for their benefit without any expectation of love in return. Do you see the connection between the fear of God and loving others? Now I've been really encouraged over the last three years or so to see again and again evidence in our church of this kind of palpable love. So people have gone out of their way to they've inconvenienced themselves to give someone a lift home or they've brought dinner around without being asked. Others have helped uh, one another out financially or they've helped practically in the house after a baby's been born. We've celebrated weddings together and we've celebrated our church anniversaries together. See, palpable love is extremely practical. And it requires us to be in real relationships with one another. Not just on Friday, but during, this, during the week as well. So practically, you can't demonstrate love to everyone in the church at the same time. That's why we have small groups. If you're not already, let me encourage you to get connected with one of our small groups as a place to live out our call to love one another in real and practical ways. It's not limited to a small group, but that provides such an easy uh, mechanism to be engaged in real relationships where you can share your lives with one another, demonstrating the kind of love that we have received in Christ. And let me encourage you to keep on loving one another more and more. I mean, look for opportunities to do so. Love isn't based on... A, a, it's not based on percentages. You know, as if there's only so much love to go around. Christ-like love multiplies and increases because its source is the Lord. So if you're finding it hard to love someone, it's probably because you've forgotten how much you have been loved in Christ. 
Remember how deep the Father's love for us is and allow that to change your heart toward those whom you're finding it difficult to love. It's this kind of palpable love in our church that will show the world very clearly that we are his disciples. Palpable love is an indispensable aspect of being a gospel-giving church. Well, the fifth aspect of a gospel-giving church is that they are hard-working. Now, a while back, I decided that I was being lazy in teaching my kids God's Word. So we started memorizing some Proverbs. One of them was Proverbs 10, verse 4. And uh, we have these actions that go with it. And it's, it says, Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Proverbs 10, 4. <laughs> That helps to remember it. Now, but you know, laziness is not simply a matter of not doing anything. Most of us will complain that we're actually too busy, right? There's so much going on in my life, I just don't have time for that right now. You see, laziness has to, also has to do with how we use our time and what for. So if we're not careful, we're going to be so busy being busy that we'll forget what we were supposed to be doing in the first place. We'll be lazy to do the work that we've been called to. So have a look at verse 9 in our passage. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy remind the Thessalonians of how they labored and toiled among them. But they were hardworking. But here's the reason why. So that we wouldn't be a burden to you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. You see, so much of our work is is taken up with meaningless pursuits. We work to get the latest iPhone or a 42-inch TV. We work to get that promotion, which only ends up giving us more work. Let me encourage you to consider how your work might not be the end goal, but a means to a greater end. Now, I'm not talking about your retirement package. I'm talking about the salvation of someone else. Salvation that only comes through the proclamation of the gospel. A gospel that we have been entrusted with. When we live for our work, we live to work. But in Christ, we already live. So we work to proclaim that life. Let me say that again. In Christ... We already live. So we work to proclaim that life. So this week, take a look at your schedule and think about what is within your ability to change. Free up time to serve others. Find opportunities to share the gospel and show palpable love. A gospel-giving church are those that work hard to proclaim the life that we have in Christ. Well, not only were Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy hardworking in preaching the gospel, they were also holy, righteous, and blameless. And that's the sixth aspect of a gospel-giving church, that we are above reproach. Now, when a medieval messenger from the King of England arrives dressed in dirty clothes and a less-than-healthy-looking horse... There could only be two possible explanations. Either he was robbed and abused along the way, or he's not really a messenger from the king. 
See, a messenger from the king carries with him the markings of his office. He represents his king, and so he is dressed and acts accordingly. Well, likewise, messengers of King Jesus dress and act in holiness. They are righteous and blameless towards those that they bring the message to. The messenger affirms the validity of the message. That's what it means to be above reproach. It doesn't mean that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were completely sinless while among the Thessalonians. It just means that they went out of their way to ensure that their actions didn't leave them open to the accusation of sin and that they were quick to repent when they did find sin in their own hearts. They were above reproach. Is your life above reproach? Do you go out of your way, even to the point of inconveniencing yourself, so that it's abundantly clear that you belong to Jesus, that you are a messenger of the King? For example, what are your living arrangements? Rent in Dubai is expensive. So there's, there's lots of financial gain to share accommodation. But if that person that you are sharing with is of the opposite sex and you're not married, whether you're sleeping together or not is irrelevant. Your living arrangements have already brought discredit to the name of Christ. Sure, it may be convenient, but the king's messengers are to be holy, righteous, and blameless. It's not about convenience. Or do you frequent less than reputable nightclubs? and consume alcohol. Now the Bible's clear, it's not wrong to drink alcohol. But it's also very clear that it is wrong to get drunk. In drinking at that bar, are you leaving yourself open to the accusation of getting drunk? That accusation, whether it's true or not, already puts you in discredit when you try to share the gospel. See, there are numerous other ways that this could play out in, in real life. But the point is this, and we see it in verse 12 of our passage. A gospel-giving church walks in a manner worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. That means being holy, righteous, and blameless in our conduct. It means being above reproach because we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the king. But in verse 13, Paul suddenly remembers something else that makes a gospel-giving church. He says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. A gospel-giving church is a church that listens to God because they know that the Word is working in us. That's what it means to be evangelical. It's the belief that God's Word is infallible and that because it is God's Word, it has the final authority in all aspects of our life together as a church. So this plays out in Redeemer in uh, in the way that we seek to preach the point of the passage. So you'll notice that I've been trying to do that this morning. And I've summarized the, the overall point of chapter 2 like this. 
a gospel-giving church are those that have been radically changed by the gospel message they proclaim, and it's visible in their relationships. And then each of the eight points have been supporting that or showing that from the passage itself. See, the authority is not in the preacher. The authority is in God's word that is being preached. But as important as preaching is in the life of our church, it's not the only way that we, engage, that we can engage with God's word. So we can study the Bible in our small groups during the week. We can share it with one another in our conversations when we meet up for coffee. We can read it on our own. We can read it on the metro. You know, you can get the Bible app for your mobile device and you can read it wherever you are, anytime, anywhere, as long as your battery doesn't run out. At least, that's what we should be doing. But the issue is not so much that we don't have access to the Word of God. It's our, it's our attitude towards the Word of God that limits our hunger for it. I remember sitting at my desk one day, anxious over the amount of work that I had to do. And the Lord reminded me of his word that I read to our kids earlier from Luke 10. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. You know, as the word of God ran through my mind, it was like a cool, refreshing drink on a hot day. I believed it and stopped worrying and began praising the Lord in prayer. I thanked him that though there are many good things to do, only one thing is necessary, to make sure that I am listening to his word. The word of God, believed on and listened to, changes us. It is at work in us as we read and share it. So take time to stop and listen to his word. Read it. Meditate on it. Pray it so that increasingly the fabric of our relationships are intertwined with the Word of God. Increasingly our church will be marked by the Word at work in us. I needed reminding that day at my desk, which is what Paul seems to be doing for the Thessalonians throughout this chapter. It's the last aspect of a gospel-giving church, a church that reminds each other of these things. So notice it in verse 1. For you yourselves know that our coming was not in vain. Verse 2, as you know, we had boldness. Verse 5, we never came with words of flattery, as you know. And verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. In verse 11, for you know how we exhorted you and encouraged you. If the Thessalonians already knew these things, why does Paul keep mentioning them? Well, because they forget, and so do we. Redeemer Church of Dubai, we need to remind each other of these things. Remind each other to be bold in the face of opposition. To remember that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Remind one another to fear God and not to seek glory from people. And as we do, to spur one another on to palpable love and hard work for the sake of the gospel all the while being above reproach in the way that we live and all of our relationships together being woven in with the word of God that works in us. 
Redeemer Church of Dubai, let this be a portrait of our church. And as we grow in these things, will the portrait increase in clarity so that together we might more clearly represent our Heavenly Father to the watching world. Let Redeemer Church of Dubai be a gospel-giving church made up of those that have been radically changed by the gospel message we proclaim and let it be visible in our relationships. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have called us into your own kingdom and glory and that because we have been found in Christ, we have been approved by you to be entrusted with the gospel, that wonderful message of God that leads to salvation. Oh Lord, help us to treat one another with the grace that we've received from you. Help us to love one another in ways that genuinely seek the good of the other person. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received, to be holy, righteous, and blameless in all our actions. Because we don't live for ourselves, we live for you. We live to proclaim the life that you have given us for the salvation of others to the glory of your name. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.